This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and social media are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. Welcome to Nothing Nothing Happens Happens in a Small Town. So we are now after Thanksgiving here, and I hope everybody had a great holiday with family and friends and yummy, yummy, yummy food. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, we have a special guest today. Uh, my dad is in town, and so we're going to do a podcast where he has a actual account. So we're going to yay talk about... We did beg him to come the last episode, whether or not he heard it yet or not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, so this next one is the Tylenol murders. Yes. I don't know about all of y'all, but I remember this pretty well. I was seven years old, living near Chicago at the time. On September 29th, 1982, Mary Kellerman, a 12-year-old girl living in Elk Grove Village, complained to her parents of having a runny nose and a sore throat. Her parents decided to give her one extra-strength Tylenol capsule to combat the symptoms. A few hours later, during the morning, her parents found her lying on the bathroom floor and immediately took her to the hospital, where she was pronounced dead. Meanwhile, in Arlington Heights, postal worker Adam Janis stopped after work to pick up his four-year-old daughter. They stopped at a grocery store where he picked up flowers for his wife and some extra-strength Tylenol. They arrived at the light pink ranch home on Mitchell Avenue where Adam's wife was making lunch. Shortly after arriving home, Adam complained of a headache, took some Tylenol, and went to lie down. Less than an hour later, he was rushed to the hospital. His breathing labored and his blood pressure alarmingly low. Despite paramedics' best efforts, Adam died of what was initially thought to be a massive heart attack but turned out to be cyanide poisoning as well. His brother and sister-in-law, Stanley, 25, and Teresa, 19, of Lizzle, Illinois, rushed to his home to console their loved ones. Both experienced throbbing headaches, a not uncommon response to a death in the family, and each took a Tylenol extra strength capsule or two from the same bottle Adam had used earlier in the day. Stanley died that very day, and Teresa died two days later. Suspicious of the deaths, of three family members, all one by one, police began investigating. Meanwhile, two firefighters talked about deaths, the deaths of Kellerman and Janice's, and they traced a connection. All four victims had ingested Tylenol before dying. An examination of the Tylenol pills taken by the victims immediately found approximately 65 milligrams of cyanide. McNeil Consumer Products, manufacturer of the extra-strength Tylenol, was immediately alerted and a recall of the medicine was initiated however it was too late for three more people were killed by the poison Tylenol. Mary Reiner 27 of Winfield was a new mother. Mother of four her fourth child a son had been born just a few days before. Mary Reiner was happily married to her husband Ed and the couple had just welcomed that fourth child as we said to the world. She used Tylenol to relieve symptoms of post-birth discomfort. Like the other victims, Mary Reiner collapsed shortly after taking the fatally disguised dose of cyanide. Mary's daughter, Michelle Rosen, was just eight years old when she witnessed her mother's poisoning, collapse, and death. So James 
Satanoff, uh, the da Daily Herald, um, well, this was posted in the Daily Herald, said Mary Magdalene Reiner grew up in Villa Park and was 100% Irish. Rosen members Rosen remembers her being a good cook and preparing corned beef and egg noodles for the family. She also loved playing softball, the drums, and bowling. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. Paula Jean Prince, 35, was a flight attendant and worked for United Airlines. On the day of her death, she flew from Vegas to O'Hare, and she purchased Tylenol from a Walgreens on her way home. An ATM surveillance camera captured the purchase. Exhausted from a long flight, Paula took a client... Tylenol to relieve the symptoms of a cold as she got ready for bed. She was found dead in her apartment. An open bottle of Tylenol was found on her bathroom counter. While other victims of the Tylenol scare were from the suburbs of Chicago, Paula was the only victim to live in the city. Her funeral was held in Omaha at the same time as the Janus family victims on October 5, 1982. She was laid to rest at the Calvary Cemetery in Omaha, Douglas County, Nebraska. She was survived by her father, Lloyd Prince, mother, Margaret Prince, and siblings, Carol, Lizzle, Margaret Conway, and Robert Prince. Coworker Miss Ms. Ahern said Paula was blonde, vivacious, had a gorgeous smile. That guy stole her dreams, her life, her future. He just destroyed it all. Just poof. One pill. What makes a man do something like that? Mary McFarland, 31, was working at her job at the Illinois Bell in Lombard. She lived in Elmhurst and was at work when she was stricken with a tremendous headache. She took two Tylenol from her purse. Friends stated that she had a good sense of humor. She tried to spend a lot of time with her kids. She was an excellent mother. She was both mother and father to them. She was a single mother, obviously, working and raising two young sons at the time of her death. Her two boys, Ryan and Bradley McFarland, now grown, survived Mary McFarland. She was also survived by her parents, John and Jane Eli Elis Eliason. 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 There you go. Uh, brother Jack Eliason and sister-in-law Nancy Eliason and siblings. A granddaughter she never had the chance to meet was named Mary in her honor. Oh, that's yeah. so sweet. So the tainted capsules were discovered in early October in a few other grocery stores and drug stores in the Chicago area, but fortunately they had not yet been sold or consumed. McNeil and Johnson & Johnson offered replacement capsules to those who had turned in pills already purchased and a reward for anyone with information leading to the apprehension of the individual or people involved in these random murders. From the Streeter Times uh, on September 30th, 1982, uh, gentleman known as Dr. Donahue identified the Tylenol as lot number MC2280. He recommended that no one should take extra strength Tylenol. It is impossible to tell when the tampering occurred, said Dr. Schaefer. He was the chief toxicologist with the medical examiner's office. We tested three capsules from each container of 50, and one of the three of them contained cyanide. What initially baffled police is that the pills had been taken from by the victims all came from different production plants. Even though they have that one that was a lot number earlier, they then found out there were more. It did not link the poisoning to the manufacturers, and it became clear that the products were tampered with on the store shelves. Following uh, from this incident, there were more than 207 different incidents of tampering across the USA after the initial Tylenol deaths, inspiring a host of copycats. So those of you old enough to remember this story may say, hey, 
and also listen to what we're saying, Chicago suburbs, those murders were in Chicago. That's not a small town. True. One murder took place in Chicago itself. The remainder were in various suburbs of Chicago. Several could actually pass as small towns. But we felt we had to discuss these murders for not only do we remember them, we were living in Illinois at the time, but as you've already kind of heard and we've hinted at, they hit very close to home. All right, so it sounds like our, our fun facts are turning into interesting facts. Yes, um, some of these are not quite so fun. Yeah, I was going to say, we're turning them into more informative facts, though we'll try to make sure we let you know if they're truly fun or not. Yes. Or you can decide, and we're just crazy people talking to you. Right. <laughs> Whatever. So, how the Tylenol mergers changed consumer packaging. If you bought a bottle of Tylenol prior to 29 September 1982, about the only thing separating you from the pills was a child-resistant cap and a wad of cotton. In retrospect, it's hard to comprehend that there was once a world where the regulation of over-the-counter medications was so lax. Today, you'll most likely find a ring of shrink-wrapped plastic around the top of the bottle and numerous warming warnings littered about the bottle, advertising and advising to you not to ingest the medication in case any of the wrapping has been removed or punctured. But most importantly, when you remove the child-resistant cap, you'll find the scourge of prying fingers and butter knives everywhere. <laughs> the foil seal. I'm so yes. glad I have strong. You know, it's funny because the other day I was, I was, I had one that was really difficult. So you know, I jammed a pen in the top. <laughs> hey, <laughs> I mean... whatever works, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny as I sit here and think about the the bottles that we bought back then. Yeah, they were child-resistant. Yeah. Guess who my mother gave the bottle to to open? <laughs> Me. <laughs> she was like, child resistant? These are adult resistant. Yeah. Uh, so that crazy fun top is known as induction sealing. It was actually patented, patented in 1960 by Jack Palmer. Induction sealing is the bonding of thermoplastic materials via induction heating, typically used to hermetically seal glass and plastic containers. While the killer was never found, which sucks, yeah. and the motive remains unclear to this day, it's difficult not to characterize the Tylenol crisis as an act of terrorism. The entire country was shaken to its very core when it came to purchasing something so commonplace and deeply intertwined with our lives that we would never dare to imagine that someone would befoul it in that way. In many ways, it signaled the end of consumer innocence. You took it on good faith that what's inside the bottle is pure. In the wake of these random killings, even today, you have to trust that the manufacturer has taken the necessary precautions to safeguard their products while potentially driving yourself crazy, crazy with all the what-ifs and actually opening the package. Mm -hmm. A week after Mary Kellerman's death, Johnson & Johnson initiated a recall, not just for extra-strength Tylenol, but for all of their products. Some 31 million bottles valued at more than a hundred million dollars. Wow. It was one of the largest recalls of its kind in 1982. Can you imagine that? That's a lot. Can you imagine a manufacturer actually recalling all of their stuff today? No. That, I mean, yeah. That's... I'm surprised we still have Tylenol on the shelves. I think this is actually what kept them from going under, that they really just said, we are going to care. We care so much. We're going to take it all back. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, they could have just simply recalled that one batch of Tylenol or or I don't know what. Well, you know, it was not only the packaging was changed for Tylenol, 
uh, during that time, how they made the pills change too. It changed from the capsules where you could pull them apart to a solid pill. And now they've got different variations of that. So that changed, changed things quite a bit for them too. Yeah, they went and did a lot. I mean, um, like I said, they could have just simply recalled that one batch of Tylenol or waited for the situation to go away, which had been really bad. Um, but the company actually promised to return their products to not to return their products to the stores until they had completely revamped and perfected their packaging by making it tamper resistant. But before they could return the Tylenol to the shelf, a great deal of trial and error took place across the drug manufacturing industry. Some companies attempted to glue the boxes shut, but then they found a common hairdryer would melt a lot of the glue they were experimenting with. Additionally, dipping some of their variations of sealed caps in water could also break through some of the tamper-resistant measures they were trying to introduce. Um, so they were trying to like see if they could gel cap, whatever. Um, all told, Johnson & Johnson spent nearly $173 million developing and modernizing their packaging to meet the demands of this new treacherous landscape. So, and this is where we go into talking about the various uh, changing of the pill itself. Capsules, such as the ones that were laced with cyanide, like Craig said there, could easily be opened and compromised with consumers, um, being none the wiser. Now Tylenol is manufactured as a caplet. The pill is coated with a gelatin veneer, so it can't easy, so it could be easily consumed and not pulled apart. Sorry, that's just really, I mean, you just, just think about it. I mean, I don't know how many people listening to this are going to be old as me and older <laughs> and remember those capsules because it's much like you'd see in the movies. Oh, I'll just take apart this capsule. And you're like, you look mm -hmm. at anything you can buy. Nothing's that easy to take apart anymore. No, not from, not like Tylenol, things that are um, watched by the Food and Drug Association. So that's another thing to think about all these other like over-the-counter things like vitamins that don't get looked at by FDA, mm -hmm. probably pull those apart easier. Sure. Thought. Food for thought. No cyanide. <laughs> In 1983, Congress passed what was called the Tylenol Bill, essentially making it a federal offense to tamper with the packaging of food and drugs. Six years later, the FDA introduced regulations making it mandatory for consumer products to be sold in tamper-resistant packaging. Why it took six years is anyone's guess, especially considering the copycat murders we'll discuss later. So the next time you have the flu or an agonizing headache and you find yourself cursing like a sailor at the layers of packaging you have to go through just to get your pill, be it from a blister pack or a foil seal, remember that it took several deaths and an entire country paralyzed by fear at the very notion of buying a bottle of Tylenol to get us to where we are today. Further proof. We can't have nice things. <laughs> All right. And now we're going to continue with the Tylenol murders. And uh, now you're going to talk to my dad, Craig Annan. Okay. Well, hi, everybody. Um, I'm just here. We were talking about the Tylenol murders. And I can kind of talk about my firsthand account of what occurred that day. On that day, um, it was sometime around noon, I'm guessing, can't remember exactly, but Adam had come into the post office. He was actually a supervisor, and at the time I was a clerk in what they called a 204B, which is a part-time supervisor. One day I'd be a supervisor, the next day I was a clerk, or could have been variations of that. So anyways, Adam came in, and he was at the supervisor's desk, and 
I went over and he and I were kind of kidding around with each other, um, just kind of laughing. And then I think he was just checking on to see what the next day's business was going to be. Anyways, he, when we were about ready to part, he just says, yeah, I'm going to head over to the Jewel Osco. I'm having a bit of a headache. So he left. And then uh, later that night, I don't know, I'm guessing it was probably 2.30 in the morning, I get a call uh, from the post office. Said, Craig, you got to come in. And I said, okay, how come? He says, well, Adam, uh, so Adam called in sick. He says, you didn't hear? Hear what? Adam's dead. I said, what? Yeah, Adam's dead. Kind of took a deep breath and said, uh, what happened? Well, they think he had a heart attack, but his brother's dead too. I said, what? And, and, his, and, and then they said, his brother's wife is in the hospital, and, and she's in a coma, and they don't know what's wrong. I said, oh, my God. So anyways, I, so I got up, got ready, went into work, on the drive to work. And I don't know why I remember this, but uh, the uh, song by Eddie Rabbit was playing uh, The Rainy Night. Huh. Yeah, and, uh, and lightning was flashing across the sky. And uh, so it kind of added to the effects of, what was running through my brain on the way to work, you know, about Adam and his brother and, and, and his brother's wife. And so I get to work and the office, you know, we got a couple hundred people in the, the office there, dead quiet. Everybody's kind of shaking and said, you know, and everybody's hearing, you know, well, they got the house yellow taped, you know, wondering what was going on, you know, and, um, so anyways, anytime a, a news broadcast would come on, I mean, dead sign. You could hear a pin drop other than the radio. And, I mean, everybody in the building was shook. I mean, just completely shook. They didn't know. And then everybody's thinking, oh, is this some type of weird disease? Are we going to be affected? You know, nobody knew. And uh, so it was, it was oh, that day was just frightening. Um, and then... Uh, so anyways, you made it through the day, and then they had the wake for Adam. And uh, so a group of us from the post office went down to the wake, and there was a huge line outside outside of the uh, funeral parlor, you know, and you're waiting in line, and police everywhere. And uh, so we're going in, and you walk in. This, of course, Adam's brother's wife had already passed away, so it was the three of them. So you went in and kind of in a semicircle were the caskets. They had Adam's brother as the one he walked up to first, and then Adam's wife. Well, Adam's brother and wife had just got married. Well, so they were dressed as they were when they got married. Adam's uh, brother's wife was in the casket in her wedding gown. And then, and so then, so the tux, the wedding gown, and then Adam, and um, it was just, I'd never experienced something like that, and I hope I never ever do again, but it was just frightening, and then I looked over to the left, and then Adam's wife is sitting in a chair, there are people around her, and she was just 
in tears and shock and you know, it was just so sad. So then we, you know, after, you know, kind of, because there was a line, you just kind of moved through and then out, out the building. And um, again, there were just people everywhere and you could see people in suits, you know. So assuming that was probably FBI yeah. or something like that. So, but uh, that, that was the experience that uh, we had at the post office that day. And then, of course, with the wake. Um, but it was just uh, it was really really sad yeah i i can't even imagine you know i mean and he had young kids they were four and two at the time that he died and you know his, his wife having to lose her husband so suddenly and just and just think about her you know she just lost and then his brother yeah and then the sister-in-law i mean i mean mean, for her i'm just sitting here thinking oh oh gosh he had a heart attack and then it's oh no no this is you go from just the shock of one death to this is a murder investigation they were poisoned why right who did this who had a motive yeah yeah so um going into who did it um, my uncle, Uncle Bill, who is my Aunt Chickie's husband, um, he actually was interviewed by the FBI. So I talked to him the other night, and he was saying that he used to hang out at a grill that was next door to the Jewel Osco. And he was questioned, he thinks, because he had a beard. And they were looking for a guy with a beard. And it was one of the um, surveillance videos, I think it was the one for the flight attendant. Yes. Showed a person with a beard. Yes. Not and because he was, his brother right. you know, worked with the guy. Yeah. And maybe got promoted out of it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so the FBI asked him a few questions. He said it scared him for a minute, but being by the question, you know, question by the FBI would probably make anybody scared for a minute. And, uh, but that was kind of his experience with it, that it didn't, uh, obviously he didn't get questioned again or anything happened, but it was just kind of a, um, a little creepy for him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just so creepy. I mean, that I didn't realize that Craig, you were so directly connected yeah. with this at the time I didn't know you I was just a seven-year-old kid living in DeKalb which is really in the in how where all this plays out you could I, I basically made our next interesting fact not so much fun fact talking about the different towns mm-hmm. that these people were from um, to kind of give you a landscape of it wasn't like Chicago today we're talking Chicago in 1980s mm-hmm. and all these are like little they're like small towns with the exception of I think was it Arlington Heights is one of the bigger ones. Yeah. But um, really, a lot of them have a very small town feel. I mean, I just went to DeKalb for my great aunt's wake um, at, in the beginning of September. And that still s- really feels like the small town it felt like when I lived mm-hmm. there. Yeah. And even that, though, felt bigger than Kiwani. <laughs> but at 33,000 people, DeKalb is not very big. Right. So now we'll go into there were a few suspects and as we've I think we've stated before this has this is unsolved it is not there's still an active suspect yes but it's not been determined that this person is actually the Tylenol murderer right so the first suspect is James W Lewis he worked as a tax accountant 
He was also known to be a fraudster. Uh, his handwriting was positively matched to that of two letters sent to Johnson & Johnson and the White House. The Johnson & Johnson letter demanded an end to the poisonings. The White House letter threatened to bomb it and continued to continue the Tylenol poisonings. Um, but he was in New York City with his wife during the time of the murders. Um, they had originally been in the Chicago area um, and they were there in the early days of September 1982. Uh, he was able to show the authorities how an offender could hypothetically tamper with Tylenol pills with cyanide, claimed he did it for helping out. This is typical of other offenders such as Ted Bundy. An unidentified man seen in a CCTV footage of the one affected one of the affected drugstores bears a striking resemblance to him. And I saw the yeah. pictures. That and I'm does like, look, yeah, he he's really does look. Weird. Yeah. The man appears to have been watching victim Paula Prince, who is also shown in the footage buying the tainted pills. Sentenced, he was sentenced to 20 years in prison for extortion and the letter and credit card fraud, but served only 13 years of the sentence and was paroled in 1995. He also went to jail later um, for three years for a rape charge. The charges, however, were dropped when the victim refused to testify. Then in February 2009, his Cambridge, he was in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and his home was raided by the FBI. Agents were seen leaving with boxes of evidence and an Apple computer. In January 2010, James Lewis and his wife were ordered by Massachusetts courts to hand over DNA and fingerprint samples. Within days of that, he appeared on a local cable, cable television program to defend his, his innocence and promote his new novel titled Poison. Jeez, that's does that not smack of like OJ and if I had done it type yeah. thing? Isn't that awful? It really is. And he's he was probably their strongest suspect. He's the one that they he's continue the one, to go back to. Yeah. During the interview, he was asked by Cambridge Community Television show host Roger Nicholson, who had previously interviewed Lewis, whether he would be willing to admit right now that he is the Tylenol killer. Lewis refused. The only thing I can say to you is that you're totally delusional, is what he said back to the guy. Yeah. He spent most of the interview talking about his book, which he says is a fictional account of poisoning deaths in a Midwestern city. Jeez. Wow. <laughs> can we talk about tone deaf? And again, does, is it just totally smacks of yeah. that whole, if I did it. Isn't that what the book was yeah. titled? Yeah. I think awful. so, yeah. Uh, the next one was Roger Arnold. He uh, contracted a nervous breakdown after being suspected of the murders. He shot and killed whom he believed to be a bar owner who allegedly turned him in, but in actuality, he mistook a random pedestrian for the that bar owner. He wow. was sentenced to 30 years in prison for second-degree murder, murder, but served only half of the sentence. He died in June of 2008. Yeah, I think he said he basically suffered that nervous breakdown because of all the pressure. Right. And then, yeah, oh, he went over the top after he killed that guy. Mm -hmm. And then it wasn't the guy he thought it was. Right. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I can't even fathom that. Um, and then Lori Dan, a mentally ill patient with a history of poisoning, it, 
poisoning attempts, uh, she went on a shooting rampage at an elementary school, killing one boy and injuring five other students. Uh, she committed suicide after taking a family hostage and wounding a man. So she was definitely not in her right mind. And then they also thought it could be Ted, Ted Kaczynski. Kaczynski. Yes, the FBI requested DNA samples from the Unabomber who had terrorized the same area just a couple of years earlier, but he denied any involvement with the potassium cyanide case. Unfortunately, none of the new leads have panned out, and the investigation continues. And here we go with our um, not-so-fun fact, interesting fact, a bit of knowledge about the air, though. Yeah. Um, so I decided to go break down the towns. It's from the north to the south, and then there's one that's a little further out west. Arlington Heights is probably the one of the biggest ones of these how these towns where these people were from. It's about 25 miles northwest of Chicago, was home to about 75,000 people in the uh, 2010 census. It's the most populous community in the United States that is incorporated as a village. To go back to last week when I was talking about the whole, um, what is a small town? I mean, yeah. figured out there really isn't a good definition in the United States for towns versus cities versus villages. You get to decide when you incorporate them what you are. Yeah. So it's known as the former Arlington Park Racetrack, home of the Arlington Million, a Breeders' Cup qualifying event. It also hosted the Breeders' Cup World Thoroughbred Championships in 2002. The village is also home to the Arlington Heights Memorial Library, which is, has one of the largest collections of books in the state. And by the start of the 20th century, Arlington Heights had about 1,400 inhabitants, it continued to grow slowly with good many farms and greenhouses after the World War II. By then, it was also known as Arlington Park, um, the racetrack founded in 1927 by California millionaire Harry D. Curley Brown upon uh, land formerly consisting of 12 farms. Camp McDonald was, and two country clubs were founded in the 30s. On July 31, 1985, a fire burned down the grandstand. A current six-story grandstand was completed and open for use in July 28, 1989. In February 2021, the track's owners, Churchill Downs Incorporated, announced that they would sell the site for redevelopment. In June 2021, the Chicago Bears of the NFL emerged as prospective buyers of the park, raising speculation that they would leave Soldier Field. That's their current home in downtown Chicago near the Shedd Aquarium and build a new stadium on that site, either alongside or directly on top of the track. They actually purchased it on September, September 29th, 2021, so just a little bit ago. They reached a $197.2 million purchase and sell agreement for the property where the new stadium potentially will be built. Um, the next one of these towns is Elk Grove, population of 33,000 as of 2020, 2010. It's home of the largest business park, not surprising due to its location, 20 miles northwest of Chicago, so just five-ish five miles south of Arlington Heights, adjacent to O'Hare Airport. It actually spans both Cook and DuPage counties, which I thought was weird. I didn't think that, the, that these um, towns would actually cross county lines, but hmm. what do I know? I don't know. I now know this now that I'm in my 40s and I'm from this location. The original settlers of the area were Potawatomi, and, and they spoke in the Algonquin language. They ceded the land in the 1830s, and most were re relocated to Kansas, Nebraska, and Oklahoma. I like the polite terminology here. They mm -hmm. ceded the land. Yeah. They were, they were 
made to leave. Right. Which, yeah. Anyhow, we've talked about that. How, uh, like, when you look at these sources and stuff, how kind they are in their wording, and you're like, that was not a very kind time. Right. Um, the area comprising modern-day Elk Grove was settled in 1834 by farmers from New England. The village was formally incorporated in 1956 in the Elk Grove Township and was founded as a planned suburban community. The majority of the houses were constructed by Centex Corporation. Sounds like we're doing like a m- movie like the Umbrella Corporation. <laughs> Evil. Anyhow, as part of the original planning concept, the village was to be uh, home to separated residential and industrial areas, the latter of which would later become the largest industrial park in the United States. Prior to its development as a residential community, it was home to many farmers and their families, mostly of German Im- immigrants. Um, many of, of the major streets in, in and around the village are named for these farmers. Bussy Farm was their final undevelop- undeveloped agriculture property of the village, located between Higgins Road and Oakton Street. Yeah. Anyhow which at one time was considered as a location for the Chicago Bears as well. So, hey, they, they've been looking around outside Soldier Field for a while. I know that for a while there, before they did the major uh, rehab, they really were looking a lot more back then. Because mm-hmm. I remember going to see a game there on the old bleachers and freezing my butt off in a snowmobile suit <laughs> <laughs> as a little kid. Elmhurst is directly south of Elk Grove. 18 miles due west of Chicago. It also straddles DePage and Cook Counties. Um, the population is roughly 47,000 right now. At what would become Elmhurst City Center, a native Ohioan named Jerry Bates established a community on a tract of, as he called it, treeless land in 1842 along Salt Creek. Uh, the following year, Hill Cottage Tavern opened where St. Charles Road and Cottage Hill Avenue presently intersect. In 1845, the community was officially named Cottage Hill when a post office was established. Four years later, the Galena and Chicago Union Railroad was given right away through Cottage Hill, giving farmers easier access to Chicago. We talk about railroads a lot in Illinois, too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The community changed its name to Elmhurst in 1869. In 1871, Elmhurst University was organized and currently has 3,500 undergrads and about 300 grad students. It was incorporated as a village in 1882 with a population between 723 and 1,050. The legal boundaries for St. Charles Road and North Avenue, one mile and a half and one quarter mile east of York Street. Blah, 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 blah. Um, Winfield. This is the truest of the small towns of this group. It's about 10 miles to the west of Elmhurst, about halfway to DeKalb. Um, It was home to approximately 9,000 people in 2010. It was originally tri- it originally tried to become incorporated as a village in 1884 under the name of Frederick Park. However, the motion was denied as it did not even have 300 resi- residents, which was what was required for incorporation. Hmm. When the village was finally incorporated in 1921, that's like 40 years later, <laughs> they had their requisite 300, 310. Um, so they've just got some neat old things going on in this town. There's Hedges Station is the oldest train depot in Illinois. It was actually moved at one point. Um, it's where it was is where currently their police station is stands. In 1977, Winfield Township bought the station after the owners had passed away. Their plan to demolish the building to construct a parking lot and more village offices 
was opposed by citizens who wanted the oldest building standing in Winfield to be turned into a historical site instead. After many arguments, the township decided to move it to another location. So now it's actually a museum. Um, its other prim primary claim to fame is a pond, Schmidt's Pond. Actually, the gentleman who owned it, Peter Schmidt, dug the pond to provide a place to harvest ice in the winter. Because, you know, it does get quite cold there in Illinois. Yes. So he used the ice for his meat market, but also provided ice to the village in general. The property, um, it was centrally located. And it, was it, it also featured an ice house to store the harvested ice. When the ice house has since, has since been burned down and turned, or wait, sorry, turned into a private residence. Of course, I want to think it's burned down because I'm just, I don't know, mean. <laughs> the pond all but disappeared in the 70s and 80s due to water tables lowering, but it's back again. So it's nice and pretty, and it's home to ducks, geese, muskrat, crayfish, frogs, toads, and fish. And while it's on private property, it can be seen from that central part of the town. So part three of the Tylenol murders. Modus operandi. According to authorities, the Tylenol killer would pick up bottles of extra strength Tylenol from the shelves, fill them with approximately 65 milligrams of toxic cyanide, 10,000 times over the average amount to kill a person, and then return the bottoms to, bottles to the shelves. Well, that explains why people died so fast. Mm -hmm. And Craig was saying during one of our breaks that, that it took him a long time to take a pill of any kind after yeah. this. I mean, I can't imagine, I mean, I, I was young when this happened, I, I and I can't imagine the panic in the... Yeah, you the, were like three, honey. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, FBI analyst John Douglas profiled the Tylenol killer as being a white male in his late 20s to early 30s who would be depressed, nocturnal loner, driven by rage. He'd have bouts of severe depression and feelings of despair. He'd feel inadequate, helpless, hopeless, and impotent, being at the same time convinced that society always maligned him in an affair, unfair way. His life would be characterized by a long list of personal failures concerning education, employment, social experiences, and relationship with women of his own age and intellect, intelligence level. Some of his feelings of inadequacy could stem from a physical disability or ailment. He would gravitate towards positions of authority or pseudo-authority, such as security guard, ambulance driver, auxiliary firefighter, and would have trouble keeping his job. He would also have a military background marked by behavioral problems and psychiatric treatment. The unsub fits the assassin type constantly thinking about killing, but never laying his hands on the intended victim. He committed this type of crime as a result of precipitating stressor he suffered in mid-September of 1982, such as loss of a job, wife, girlfriend, or possibly a parent. His MO suggested not a particularly organized or methodical offender, but rather a sloppy and distracted personality. This would be reflected in the car he drives, possibly a police-type large Ford sedan, which would represent the strength and power, both of which he lacks. Though it can't be completely excluded, he is disgruntled employee or former employee of Johnson & Johnson, McNeil Consumer Products, or the targeted drugstores. 
it is more likely that the offender was motivated by general rage and resentment against society that had wronged him or ignored him. Likewise, the choice of Tylenol might or might not be significant. In all probability, he would have written letters concerning his perceived wrongs to people in positions of power, such as President Ronald Reagan or Chicago Mayor Jane Byrne. The feeling of having been ignored gave him a reason to escalate. The offender would also keep a scrapbook, diary, or journal of some kind detailing his activities, which would reflect his feelings of inferiority. Inferiority. Why can't I say that? I do this all the time. We'll sit here with words. That's what I say (laughs) almost every single episode and, oh, every day at work. Post-offense, he would talk with people, also people directly involved in the case, such as police officers or drugstore clerks about the poisonings and would probably revisit the stores where he planted the poison cyanide capsules along with the victim's graves. He could even go so far as surveilling their homes. He would also inject himself in the investigation, volunteering for helping police and participating into night vigils. Contrary to other types of offenders, this one would feel remorseful and emotionally distraught if confronted with the consequences of his actions and that he had on the victims he depersonalized. Douglas added in his book, The Anatomy of Motive, that the Tylenol killer would be someone like James W. Lewis, who fits the profile in several aspects and had the right background for an offender of this type. You know, back to when we were talking about the wake and the police around there. Right. I know at that time, the discussion between people was, is the police were there because they were thinking that he, the murderer, was going to show up to that. Yeah. Yeah, fits the profile, yeah. And, I, you know, it talks about, you know, like having a diary or something like that. And you kind of wonder if maybe someday the the killer comes out when they die because family members find it, you know. Right. I think about this guy, James Lewis, if it really is him. Yeah. I mean, think of all the things that fit this profile that he fits. I mean, I don't know what car he drove or drives now, but that whole... He wrote a book about it. Could that be him detailing right. what he did? Only changing a little bit, like you know, you write some personal things about our lives, right, into your books because we've had some interesting stuff happen over yes. the years. Yes, <laughs> so it just is really, it really makes you wonder. So our next fun fact or interesting fact or whatever fact we want to call this, but it's factual. How's that? Is poisoning really a woman's preferred murder weapon? I found the Federal Bureau of Investigation Supplemental Homicide Report data from 1999 through 2012. It's imperfect, but it's a pretty good source with data on 195,578 murder cases, 209,000 dead, and 240,000 killers. So, pretty good sample size. Just a little, yeah. Just a few, a few people. The first thing to know is that men commit so many more murders than women, about 90% of them. So, and that every kind of weapon is used much more by the guys. But you can still review the weapon preferences of men and women separately. Men use guns two-thirds of the time. So women use guns way less than half the time, although it still remains the most popular weapon among women. After guns, women are most are likely to use a knife, 
to beat their victim to death or to strike them with a blunt object. After guns, poisoning is the sixth most common way a woman kills. Hmm. Because men use guns for so much of their killing, and because women use guns much less frequently, it turns out that women tend to use every other weapon more than men. So yes, poison is more popular among women killers than it is among men. But poison in general is not a very popular weapon. It is used in just under one half of 1% of murders. That's uh, using a definition of poisoning that includes standard poisons and also murdering with a poisonous use of narcotics or sleeping pills. It does not include poison gas because the FBI lumps that under asphyxiation. Hmm. Don't know how much that would come up if we used that piece. Yeah. It, again, since it's lumped into that, I didn't see a lot of pulling apart of that data. Even with that tiny share, poison is still used in 901 murder cases listed in this d data. The vast majority of cases involve one killer and one victim, and they knew each other well. Since a few cases involve multiple killers or victims, there are a total of 936 deceased and 1,108 offenders. That's a big enough group to draw some fair conclusions about who uses it and who is killed. Women are seven times as likely as men to choose poison as their murder weapon. As I said before, there are nine male killers for every one female killer. So in raw numbers, more men will kill with poison than women do. But among men murderers, poison is used in just over one third of 1% of killings. But for women, it is used in more than 2.5% of killings. You can see a more nuanced version of weapon choices if you remove all gun murders by men and women, posing the question, other than guns, which weapons are used by men and which are used by women. That provides a more mixed picture than just men are more likely to use guns and women are more inclined to use everything else. Hmm. Just stuff. Yeah. Without guns, men have a greater preference than women for beating, blunt objects, and strangling. Women are more prone to kill with stabbing, asphyxiation, which could include some poisonings, mm -hmm. poison, Fire, drowning, explosives, and defenestration. I was going to look that, that up and I just forgot. Oh. I'm sorry, I stink. We'll look it up in a minute. In most of all of these cases, the differences in preference between the genders are very small. A couple percentage points. Such as women stabbing 39% stabbing of the time, men stab 37% of the time, and men beating people to death 21% of the time, where women do it 19% of the time. Hey, honey, I'm going to beat 21% of people to death. <laughs> Sorry, that just the, the way I've got it phrased made me giggle a little bit. Poisoning does stand out. With all guns removed, women are almost four times as likely as men to use poison. And also, let's not forget that asphyxiation PC. That mm -hmm. might actually braise it a little bit more. Um, so it is used in just over 1% of killings by men. So, defenestration is the act of throwing someone or something out a window. Oh. Okie dokie. Interesting. I, had, <laughs> I pulled this data and I was like, I need to look that up. Yeah. I underlined it on a piece of paper, but I didn't put it on our, I should have done that on our shared document. And thanks to dad for looking it up as we're talking. <laughs> See, having, we need a social secretary. That's yes. all there is to it. <laughs> Okay, so um, it's uh, so let's see. Back to that whole poison.
poisoning is used in just over 1% of killings by men and just over 4% of killings by women. And the, remember, this is taking guns out of the mix. And the only other weapon with a bigger difference is drowning, used seven times as much by women, but you still used in less uh, than a third as often as poisoning, only 311 killers. In the final analysis, men kill with poison more often, but it is the weapon of choice by women murderers much more than men, even if the male predilection for guns is removed. Yes, poison is the woman's weapon. Now we're going to talk about the copycats. So the, the first one is Stella Nickel. And it's funny because I think Tara and I watched the, both watched the same documentary on this the other day. Um, she lives in Seattle, Washington. She filled capsules of Excedrin with lethal cyanide, targeted her husband Bruce, poisoning his medicine before leaving contaminated bottles at stores, hoping to poison others in order to reclassify Bruce's death as accidental so she could receive his insurance money. Super lovely. Yeah. Um, attacks killed 40-year-old Susan Snow and also poisoned Snow's husband, but he was rescued. Uh, she failed a polygraph test that she continuously rebuffed. She was sentenced to 90 years in prison. And if I remember right, um, part of the reason that they caught her was the fact that she had uh, two bottles in her possession yes. that were poisoned yes, they're in here okay yeah um so i'll go uh back to this on june 5th 1986 the couple was living in auburn washington when bruce 52 came home from work with a headache according to stella bruce took four extra strength tylenol excedrin capsules from a bottle in their home for his headache and collapsed minutes later he died shortly thereafter at Harborview Medical Center, where treatment had failed to revive him. His death initially was ruled to be by natural causes with attending physicians citing emphysema. Yeah, because he did have underlying health issues. Yeah. A second death, less than a week later, forced authorities to reconsider the cause of Bruce's death. So her idea backfired. Right. On June 11th, Sue Snow, a 40-year-old Auburn bank manager, took two Excedrin capsules for an early morning headache. Her husband, Paul Webking, took two capsules from the same bottle for his arthritis and left the house for work. At 6.30 a.m., their 15-year-old daughter, Haley, found her mom collapsed on the floor of her bathroom, unresponsive and with a faint pulse. Paramedics were called and transported her to the Harborview Medical Center, but she died later that day without regaining consciousness. Early on in the investigation, they focused on product tampering. A total of five bottles had been found to be contaminated in the entire country, and it was regarded as suspicious, as I said, that Stella had two, um, two of them purely by chance. Sure they were by chance. <laughs> She was very early on identified as a suspect, uh, for she also claimed she bought the bottles at different times from different stores. In January 1987, Stella's daughter approached police with information. Her mother had spoken to her repeatedly about wanting Bruce dead, having grown bored with him after he quit drinking. She claimed that her mother had even told her that she had tried to poison Bruce previously with foxglove hidden in capsules. When she failed, she also began re library research on other methods and hit upon cyanide. 
Stella's daughter also claimed that Nickel had spoken to her about what the two of them could do with the insurance money if Bruce was dead. Yeah, if I went further on, and you remember from the, apparently we watched the same stuff. I think we did. Imagine that. But like the FBI even found, um, because she had gone to the, um, uh, back then, 1986, she went to a library to do her research. Yeah. And she had um, checked out Book on Poisons, and they actually found her fingerprints all over the page about cyanide. Yeah. So she was pretty obvious. Um, Joseph Melling is the second one. Uh, he spiked Sudafed decongestants with cyanide, tried to poison his wife with the medicine in order to collect insurance money. Here we go again. It's all about the money. Yep. Two people were killed from the attacks, and he was sentenced to life in prison. In 1990, Joseph Melling took out several hundred dollars of life insurance on his wife. Okay, so people beware if, you know, your spouse takes out a bunch of uh, insurance. Yeah, seven, several hundred thousand yeah. Uh, dollars. Oh, yeah, sorry. sorry. Not several hundred. Several <laughs> hundred. <laughs> yes, thank you. Sorry, several yes. hundred thousand dollars. Um. In early 1991, he added accidental death benefits. All told, Melling stood to collect $700,000 if his wife happened to die in an accident. Joe was not just being prudent. He was planning for the future. The very day after the coverage became effective, he fed his wife a capsule of cyanide-laced Sudafed. Talk about, yeah, if you're going to do this, people... Maybe wait a little bit. I, I guess he was in a rush. I don't know. First, he played the dutifully distraught husband. When his wife collapsed from the poison, he phoned 911, feigned hysteria, then melodramatically vowed to beat uh, the paramedic to the um, hospital. It's like, okay, the par- why would you even do He was being way too dramatic. So mm. basically, I'm going to make it to the hospital before you. And then he tried to divert suspicion by calling the police to her room and declared in front of her family that he expected to be the prime suspect because of the insurance he had purchased. He claimed that the suspicion would prove unwarranted because the policies he bought did not cover death by poisoning. But then he actually probably saved his wife's life by mentioning cyanide so the doctors treated her for such and saved her life. Worried he might be suspected in the poisoning, Uh he concocted a scheme to divert official attention elsewhere. Joe laced five packages of Sudafed with lethal amounts of cyanide and planted them on drugstore shelves, killing two people before the manufacturer, Burroughs Welcome, could institute a national recall of its products. And just like Stella, Joe was a primary suspect from the start the FBI easily verified that the policies he had purchased did not preclude coverage for poison. He said didn't preclude coverage for poisoning. In fact, Joe no doubt knew that he would get the money if it was poisoning because not only had he, was he an insurance salesman, he'd also asked, asked a colleague if an accidental death policy would cover, cover death by poisoning. So he was just a really bad liar and had done too much talking to people. Yes. Interviewing his wife after her recovery, the FBI discovered other evidence of his guilt. He had behaved bizarrely in the months leading up to the poisoning, had coaxed his wife into taking the Sudafed by complaining she was congested and snored at night before being poisoned. She had, in fact, been perfectly healthy. 
Yeah. So that He's was a really uh, awesome guy. Yeah. Those were the two biggest copycats that, if you do some searching on the Tylenol murders, that they they going through all of it, they said they pointed back to the Tylenol murders and figured if they did enough mm-hmm. putting it in other things, then they wouldn't be suspected. And like I said in the whole thing about the poisoning being um, usually by somebody who is intimately knowledgeable of the other person. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that's the Tylenol murders. And uh, I can't, yeah. it, he still hasn't been found, he or yeah. she. Again, we have a that one suspect. I really do wonder if the one guy will have done it all the time. And hopefully, I mean, hopefully they do find out someday it would be good to know who actually did that as long Especially as it's not your for uncle the families yeah <laughs> <laughs> hopefully it wasn't uncle bill i don't think so <laughs> but <laughs> it's like let's see what would be the motive hmm craig got a promotion out of this no. but, but at that point in time no. he was no longer your uh brother-in-law though so right yeah well they, yeah aunt chicken and uncle bill got a divorce shortly before that we think so well, that Anyhow. is. So, thank you for listening to Nothing Happens in a Small Town, where things do happen and small towns are not the quiet, quaint places you think they are. Not by a long shot. <laughs> and you can uh, support us by going to our Patreon page, uh, www.patreon.com slash nothing happens in a small town. Instagram, our user profile is nothing happens in a small town. Twitter user profile is Nothing, nothing Happens in a Small Town, at N-H-I-A-S-T. Facebook page is Nothing, nothing Happens in a Small Town, town or N-H-I-A-S-T 2021. And if you want to email us with some uh, suggestions, uh, we happily take them this was actually a suggestion by my dad well this I mean, episode it's a really good yeah he has the personal experience um but please you know email us at nothing, nothing happens in, in a small town, town at gmail.com so thank you guys talk we'll uh, see you in two weeks yep thanks bye